time. It seems to be moving quicker every year. It's something we wish we had more of and we are intrigued by those who seem to use it wisely. In this episode, we're going to dive into strategies and tools used by some of the world's most successful people. I'm Ellie Hill, psychologist and founder of Pragmatic Thinking. Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it actually take to live boldly amongst the busyness, the mess and the uncertainty of our world. Dr. Amantha Imba is an organisational psychologist and founder of behavioural science consultancy Inventium. Amantha's thoughts have appeared in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Entrepreneur and Fast Company. And in 2021, she won the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award, which recognises the thinker that has contributed the most to the understanding of innovation globally over the last two years. And she was the first Australian to do so. Amantha is also the host of the number one ranking business podcast, How I Work, where she interviews some of the world's most successful people about their habits, rituals and strategies for optimising their day. Over three years later, with over 3 million podcast downloads, she's interviewed more than 150 best-selling authors, musicians, entertainers, entrepreneurs and business leaders to get inside their heads and understand the routines and rituals that enable them to achieve their purpose. In her latest book, time-wise, Amantha brings together all the gems that she has learned through these conversations with guests, including Adam Grant, Dan Pink, Cal Newport, Mia Friedman, Taria Pitt, plus many, many more. In this episode, we unpack how ways of working has changed, especially across the last few years, why having an experiment mindset changes how we look at our habits, and how this approach has guided Amantha and her team to have a four-day work week. This conversation will open up your thinking on how you use your time. It certainly did for me, and it provides practical strategies that you can put into place today. So soak up the intrigue, the insights, and the inventive approach to living a big life from Dr. Amantha Imba. Amantha, it is such a delight to be connecting with you. Good to be here, Ali. Great to have this conversation. Now, you are an organisational psychologist, the founder of a behavioural science consultancy firm called Inventium. You're an author, a podcast host, an innovator, a change maker, and you are, people come to you for, for your ideas. Although, many years ago, you were offered an international record deal for a debut album. Talk to me a little bit about your singer-songwriter pursuit and that decision to to step away from that potential career. So that was something I did when I was doing my postgrad studies in psychology and I was looking for any excuse to procrastinate and uh, I'd, I'd always played musical instruments uh, during school. I went to a school that put fi- quite focus on that and... I was looking for a creative outlet. I remember during my honours year, kind of accidentally got into songwriting, so singer-songwriter, guitarist, and then... How during- do you accidentally get into songwriting? Was that more... Uh- I think it, like, from memory, I mean, God, it was so long ago now, but I think I was just mucking around with chord progressions on the guitar and I've always loved writing and I, I honestly don't know. It was mucking around and then going, oh, maybe I might put a structure around this or something like that. And then in my doctorate, I 
interestingly, with psychology, I found that my fourth year honours year was the hardest year. The the doctorate was actually a lot easier and there was more time to procrastinate. And so I uh, got kind of connected with this producer. We created a demo of some of my songs and then just being a, a type A kind of weirdo thought, well, I've got a demo. I guess I should send this out and try to get a record deal as you do. And anyway, um, was very lucky and got offered a, a deal with uh, with Roadrunner Records, who were traditionally quite a big heavy metal label. They they had bands like Slipknot and Sepultura at the time, and they were interested in me, even though I wasn't heavy metal. And worked sort of worked with them. Was talking with them for about a year um, about re-recording the album, and then towards the end of the year, they were like, you know, you do realise that you'll be touring for 11 months of every year. That's how it works if you're a recording artist. People so, want to listen to you. <laughs> yeah. And also it's, I mean, it's one of the main revenue sources for record labels in, in terms of money um, and revenue that tours bring in. And for, for whatever reason, I guess because I was just completely naive to the whole industry, uh, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'd have to give up my psychology uh, and my career, my future career as a psychologist. And to me, that was always my first love. Like music was never in my blood. It was just a fun thing that I did compared to every musician that I worked with during my time in the industry where it was just, it was in them. Like they couldn't have done anything else and stayed true to themselves. Like they were musicians at their core and I was not. And I felt like a bit of a fraud, to be honest, because of that. And I ended up stepping away from the deal because I'm like, I can't give up psychology. I don't want to. Um, I would prefer to be a psychologist than a potential rock star. And so that's how that all happened. I love the the creative procrastination as as an avenue. Talk to me a little bit about the pull or the interest to psychology. What was it that that piqued your interest and and then obviously was part of that decision around this is something I want to pursue? I grew up with a mum that was a clinical psychologist and particularly during my teenage years we would have a lot of discussions about her work and what it involved and I remember she would describe herself as a detective of the mind and I always thought, oh, that sounds, that sounds really fun. And I've always just been interested in why people do what they do and also wanted to go into a profession where I was helping people. And those two things combined, it, it just, psychology just felt right. The pursuit from there of how do you bring that interest as well as as that connection to helping people went on finished your doctorate what was the field of work that you went into after your studies I during my doctorate I did work in a couple of HR or human resources roles uh, one of which was particularly horrible I was the HR manager for a security firm and got like physically assaulted by a job applicant that I was interviewing and told my manager about this. And then they went on to hire the guy. And so I resigned at that point. Uh, So yes, that was, that was interesting. And then straight after my doctorate though, my first full-time 
job was in advertising as a consumer psychologist and strategist. So working with brands to understand consumer behavior and work out what's the most motivating thing or things that they can say to consumers, customers to make them buy more of their product. So I remember just before I accepted the job, I read No Logo by Naomi Klein. I don't know if you ever read it. It was big. I haven't come across it, no. 20 years ago, it was very big. Uh, Kind of an anti-capitalism sort of book and and here I was going into advertising. And so I, I loved the work in advertising. Intellectually, it was fascinating. Understand why do people buy what they buy and how can you influence behavior? But, you know, Ethically, it never sat quite right. And the more senior I became in my role, I was able to say, well, I don't want to work on that brand. I don't want to work on this brand because I don't agree with what they're doing. Uh, and and then it just got to the point where I'm like, you know, I went into psychology to help people. And I don't think I'm helping people by helping encourage them to buy more chocolate bars. And so I sort of knew that I'd reached my use-by date in the industry and I gave my boss three months' notice and thought, oh, (laughs) three months to figure out what I will do next in life seems like a long enough amount of time. (laughs) Where did you kickstart with that three months? Because I think, and even if I think about some people listening might go, look, there's, there's a couple of things maybe about my role, whatever that is, might not be quite aligned but also it's a job and a role and there are bits of it that I like. So even that decision to go, I'll give three months notice and figure out what might be next. Where do you, where do you go to find that out? Where, what, whether it's the conversations that you step into, the questions that you ask, the actions that you step into in terms of navigating that question. Yeah, this was back in my sort of mid to late 20s and I don't think that, I had a particularly insightful process. Like I just, I probably, I think I just looked on Seek uh, and and looked at what jobs, what job ads rather got me feeling excited. And maybe I spoke to a few people. I wasn't particularly well networked and I was living in Sydney at the time because I'd um, moved up there uh, because I'd been headhunted into a role for an agency in Sydney. And so certainly my networks in Sydney were not very good. And so, yeah, like I feel like there weren't many people that, that I could sort of go, hey, what should I do? And I interviewed for a few jobs and I remember I just couldn't find anything that got me excited where I thought the workplace culture would be a really good fit or where I really liked the... Uh, like the IP, the intellectual property that I'd be working with as a consultant. And so plan B was start my own business. And that's what I did. I took the plan B. Inventium is your business. It's an incredible consulting company working with organisations around and behavioural science consulting. When you then went, okay, I'll start my own thing, aligned to where I want to go and that ability to be able to utilise the IP around the thinking. And I'm almost hearing that, you know, understanding psychology, but how do we help people as well? So coming back to that kind of thread of why you got into psychology. What was the, the and maybe even continues today, that point of difference or the secret source that you wanted this, 
this business, Inventium, to bring to clients the way that we work, the way that we connect, the point of difference that we can have in the market. Well, I mean, I think like lots of consultancies would claim to say, yeah, we help people work better or we help people do this better or that better. But I felt like a lot of what I was seeing was just fluff. It was just people's opinion on what they reckon works or maybe based on a case study of how things worked for them in their career. And as a, a scientist and someone, you know, that just still reads academic journal papers from you know, feels like psychology and neuroscience and management science for fun. I felt like there was all this untapped great scientific research that actually provided us with evidence to go, well, if we do this, we'll get that. And that's been proven or, you know, proven is a word that uh, I guess, is, uh, you know, don't really use that in psychology, but that's been suggested to be supported uh, from you know, this study that's been published in a um, top quality peer reviewed journal paper with, um, you know, a really high standard in terms of their methodology. So for me, what Inventium was about was really trying to unpack a lot of this complex science that, you know, the average person, it's really hard, I think, to pick up an academic paper and dissect it because there's so much jargon. The language around the statistical analysis is often very confusing if you haven't studied statistics. And then um, often the sort of the discussion section, which is the so what section, it's kind of written in a way that is not really geared to sort of practically what should we do differently based on these results. And I felt like a skill of mine was dissecting complex science and thinking about, okay, at a really simple practical level, what does that mean we need to do to get X result? And so making complex science um, science simple and practical is really the thing that has spanned across the 15 years that I've been doing Inventium. And I, and I still think, um, you know, our clients still comment on, you know, that is a huge differentiator for us. Being able to discern what does this actually mean? Practically, what, what can you do as being that really secret, secret source? You do work with organisations about their ways of working uh, right now we're talking in 2022, so post a couple of years, post-COVID, where I almost feel like the way that we worked significantly changed. Every habit that we had in our way of working really got shaken up uh, and re-navigated. I'll, I'm going to ask you about you and your team first, and then let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing across organisations and the way that we work. What changed for your team in, say, March of 2020, when a lot of that face-to-face training changed, the way that we work shifted? What were some of the things that you and your team needed to re-navigate? Oh, like everything. So we, most of our business was based on running face-to-face things, um, programs, whether they be workshops or training or keynote speaking. Um, There was some of the business because some of our business does involve working with the Australian Financial Review and running their most innovative companies list and now the best places to work list. So that that, um, wasn't terribly affected, but certainly all our consulting work was. And so we had to very quickly pivot into going, okay, how do we – Translate the Inventium experience, which is something we take really seriously. Like I I don't think that as consultants or as people running programs to upskill people, it's not enough to have great content. Um, You know, there's a lot of great content around and you can generally pick it up for 30 bucks in a bookstore. So like you absolutely have to provide an incredibly compelling and engaging experience. And we really obsess over that. We track that. 
And it's like, how, how do you, how do you do that in the virtual world? I think was something that so many people were struggling with. And so that was a huge pivot for us. And now, I mean, I, st- I still think probably 80% of the consulting work that we're delivering is done virtually. Uh, but, you know, we, um, for, for most of the pandemic, for most of the last few years, we've sort of changed things a little bit now. Uh, we used to have what we call E&E scores. Um, so what percentage of people that did our programs felt uh, firstly energised um, to, to go out and apply what they've learned and equipped. So sort of felt like they had enough knowledge to go out into the world and apply what we taught them. Uh, and we, um, we we really prided ourselves through, you know, that switch to virtual still being able to main, maintain energized and equipped scores of around 97 or 98% in terms of how many people felt that off the back of an Inventium experience. So that is something we take very, very seriously. I mean, I know I've sat through just like, you know, a lot of bad training and bad webinars where it's, you know, it's just like, why, why am I, we all yeah, have, why right? am I subjecting myself <laughs> to this? And then you realize that you don't have to, and then you switch off. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that was a big thing. Um, but also because within the space of a few weeks, uh, a lot of our work was postponed or cancelled because people didn't see virtual delivery as an alternative. It meant that we had to retrench some people on the team, which I'd never had to do before. And that was absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, that was that was really awful. And the two other changes that we made is that we did have offices in Melbourne and Sydney and obviously everyone was working from home that was a knowledge worker, uh, which is all of our business. And our leases were coming up for renewal at Christmas. And we, we thought long and hard about this, but we thought let's become a remote first company where we have no physical offices. So that was a big change for us. The final change um, is we moved to a four day week where people are still paid their full-time salary, but they only work for normal length days and so we've been running that for about two years now um and that has been a real game changer massive changes and uh no doubt reflecting the significant changes that a lot of your clients are trying to kind of make as well that decision to let the officers go and become a remote first company what were and what have been or what continues to be some of the cultural considerations because sometimes the resistance to that, that sense of getting people together, we've seen productivity, we can see you can do that from anywhere, Um, productivity scores have gone up but that sense of culture which probably taps into what you were saying before around engagement, connection, feeling energised within your team um, so that you can then be sharing that with clients what, ha- what are some of the considerations for a remote first company around how we stay connected from a cultural and is there any rhythms that you've put into place with your team that's been effective? It's something that we've given so much thought to. I think someone that's really influenced my thinking uh, is a guy called Darren Murph and he's head of remote at GitLab and we first got connected. Someone introduced us because they thought he would make a good guest on How I Work, which is the podcast I host where I interview people about, um, highly successful people about the way that they approach their work. And I loved what Darren had to say about how he thought about remote work, something that he had been, you know, really uh, like obsessed with in terms of 
you know, the, the things that he spends time thinking about because his job at GitLab is to create a great remote first company for the thousand plus employees that GitLab has. So we at Inventium, we are always running experiments. So, you know, we, we have, I guess, hypotheses that we're testing around. Well, we think that if we do this, this will help people feel more connected. Um, so I can certainly talk about some of the experiments that we're running at the moment. But I mean, for us, everything's a work in progress. Everything is an experiment. We track data on everything that we do so that we can make an informed choice to go, yeah, this feels good, but is this actually, you know, moving moving the dial, shifting the dial? I love that that sense of an experiment mindset to to be actually be thinking about a hypothesis and then and then not only just going on gut feel, but what are, what's the data actually telling us? There's something that's quite um, objective about that as opposed to, oh, I just like this or I'll shift and change. Um, and no doubt that's been really beneficial internally. How important do you think that is now if we think about the future of work for leaders to be thinking about themselves having a, an experiment mindset to be seeing things from an experiment point of view rather than a have to implement a certain level of kind of process. I think it's critical. I mean, it's a way of de-risking everything that you do. Uh, if you can just break it down into a small experiment and be clear on what's the hypothesis that you're testing here and what's the data that you're going to use to make a decision. I mean, firstly, it makes decision-making very easy, um, but it just de-risks things. It's really risky to go, hey, I've got this idea and I'm going to implement it and I'm going to spend lots of time and money doing so. Um, but instead, we'll, we will run quick, short, sharp experiments. Uh, you know, some do go for a few months, but only if we feel like we need that longitudinal or longer term data to make an informed decision. Like the four day week was a six month experiment because we felt with, you know, the different sort of cycles our business goes through running say an eight week experiment wouldn't be long enough to see the impact on that initiative on our business. Uh, um, you know, whereas other experiments might be over, you know, a few days or a few weeks. So setting those parameters as you're stepping into the experiment, really thinking about is this a short one, what's what's required. With the four-day work week, what sparked that idea and what did you learn in the six months? What sparked the idea? We uh, got together as a team after we had made those retrenchments, which you know affected all of us and because we are a small, close-knit team and we, we ran a, a virtual ideation session to think about, well, how, how can we turn what is a really challenging situation with what's happened to our team and what's happening to the world and our lives and our families and really improve how we all feel about work? Not that anyone was miserable about work and engagement was still very high. You know, at the time we were, our engagement scores were in the top 10% for our industry of management consulting. Uh, but we thought, how can we make things even better and be really deliberate about that? So we had um, a bunch of ideas that the team suggested. And one of the ideas was, why don't we try the four-day week? And it was interesting because I, like a couple of months prior to that, I'd had Andrew Barnes on the How I Work podcast, and he's the co-founder of the four-day week movement over in New Zealand. And I'd sort of, I, I thought, oh, I have to, like revisit that when this, you know, pandemic business is over. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> and I'd sort of just sort of cast it aside. And so when it was brought up, I'm like, oh, well, 
why wouldn't we trial it now? That's a really good point. And so that's how it came up. And then we uh, sort of, you know, worked out, you know, some key decisions that one needs to make when you're trialing the four day week, like, you know, do we take the same day off? Is it opt-in, voluntary, all sorts of things. And um, yeah, what it, what is the, if you're happy just to um, outline what what is the four-day work week? So at Inventium, we call it gift of the fifth with the thinking being we, we all decided that we would take Fridays off. Uh, Fridays are, you know, generally days where we're not doing um, like client delivery work, so a training program or an event or something like that. Uh, and, um, and also it just means that you can have a long weekend. So if you get your job done in four normal length work days from Monday to Thursday, you get the gift of time. So the gift of the fifth um, on Friday, the fifth day of the week. So uh, yeah, we all take Fridays off. It is opt-in. Um, everyone has opted in, uh, but that wasn't a given. One person didn't opt in because they just sort of wanted to have a bit more flexibility uh, around sort of school pick up and drop off. So they did still work Fridays, but then they ended up opting into the four day week a few months later. Uh so yeah, that's that's how it works. What did you learn from this experiment? Um, are there any areas that I guess surprised you, either in the positive or maybe um, some friction points through that six month experiment? I can't say there were too many surprises because I'd seen a lot of data on other companies that had done the four day week, and so I felt pretty confident that it would work. Um, I. I guess something we weren't sure about is whether it would impact on how collaborative we were as a team, because you think really differently about time when you're constrained to working for normal length days, not for 10 or 12 hour days. And you're conscious of your own time and using it really wisely, but you're also conscious of not wanting to waste anyone else's time. I feel like we're, we can often be quite careless, I think, with how, you know, we think about time um and it's certainly something that that i cover in my new book time wise which is all about how can we be more conscious about how we use our time so i think that was really big um but what we found is that collaboration and you know sort of feeling supported by your team members wasn't affected that stayed stable so that was really important for us as as um you know a small team that really value collaborating now that Beyond the experiment, it is part of the way of working for you and your team. Are there what are the parameters around the gift of the fifth, which I love that name? What are the parameters that help that to work effectively? Are there and I, I guess I'm going quite practical and quite specific here. Is it zero contact on on the Friday? Uh, what what if you know universe happens when you set boundaries and parameters where they go oh actually maybe this week or next week so are there key things that you have in place or the team has put in place to actually help that work really well so from monday to thursday i mean one of the things that we do a lot of work with with our clients is teaching them how to work more productively and do better deeper more focused work in the age of digital distractions so where we're already, I guess, quite high performing and very conscious of how we spend our working hours at Inventium. Uh, so that was already something that we were really good at. We did double down on several strategies and were able to boost productivity 
by about 25, 26% during our experiment. And we've maintained that increase two years on because uh, we recently sort of looked at what's happened now. We've been doing it for two years. In terms of the Friday though, like, you know, you know, shit happens. I mean, you know, we are a management consultancy. No one's going to die like if we don't respond to their email so we're not working in a life and death industry but we do want to be responsive to our clients so generally I would say you know at a really practical level most of the team would check their email once or twice on a Friday uh that would be pretty normal but it's not because anyone is saying to them you have to do this um uh, you know, and by words, you know, people are welcome to put on an autoresponder if they want, um, and some people do. Uh, but it's more, I, I guess, they they want to. And likewise, for myself, I will often do one or two hours of deep work uh, on a Friday, just because I want to. Like I know that it's it's going to be largely uninterrupted because my team are not working. Um, sometimes, you know, if, if something urgent comes up, like let's just say uh, I'm doing a keynote or, or have a podcast interview booked on a Friday um, or a media interview, you know, which, do, which does happen occasionally, maybe on 50% of Fridays, there might be some commitment that had to happen on a Friday. Um, uh, uh, if I'm going to text my assistant, Hannah, because I've lost some detail that I need, She's fine with that, like. But I would apologise. I'd always mm. be like, "I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to message you on a Friday, Hannah." But yep. blah, uh, and everyone's very understanding. But you know, that's that's more the exception than the norm. It's this sense of having the default that it is off, and then and then you're making quite a conscious choice around which are the bits that we're putting in, um, and and the parameters around that. If you are having a clear Friday, and you mentioned before, just around there might be that space to do more deep work, deeper thinking, concept thinking. Um, but if you're not doing that, how do you use your fifth? What what are the ways that you you utilise that, whether it's to re-energise or reconnect? Where do you um, invest that time? So I would always invest it into health. Uh, I would always do um, uh, like a workout typically with my personal trainer on a Friday. That's a pretty regular um, sort of, you know, date that I've got in the diary. Uh, I would often do some kind of social connection activity. Um, As an only child, I, I always say that friends are the family that I've chosen. And so catching up with a friend for a walk or something would be a typical use of um, part of a Friday. Uh, and that's more for friends that have flexible schedules like myself, uh, which are a few of my friends. Um, I would, I mean, look, I, I, you know, when I've got my, uh, daughter who I've got half, half the time, she's with her dad, the other half, uh, I normally do school pick up and drop off. So I would do that as usual, um, on a Friday, which obviously does, um, you know, eat into a standard work day, but um, because we have ultra flexibility, I can do that every day. Um, but it is handy when uh, my daughter's on school holidays and it just means I'm, you know, not working on uh, on a Friday. Uh, other things that I would do, um, like re- reading would be something, but sometimes it's just life admin. Um, so there, there are a few of the ways that I would use Friday. 
it's it's one of those things that uh, that kind of scarcity people will often say I want more time and so it's that conscious connection around well yes if I had it what would I do with it because uh, otherwise it you know time kind of shifts and moves and warps based on on how we utilize it as well this is obviously a key theme of your new book which is uh, called time wise great book which has also come out of your podcast where, as you mentioned before, you you speak with some of the best and brightest all around the world around how they work, what might be some of the tools and strategies they they utilise, um, and the podcast being called How I Work. Uh, and that's almost a, well, it is a PhD in itself, having looked at what's happening right now um, in, in terms of things people are putting into place. And you've distilled that, uh, which I'm sure was no mean feat, to be able to pull some of that from the podcast into, into a book form. Um, and the book is really about those powerful habits, more time, how do we create even greater joy um, I think you've got Adam Grant talking at the front of the book where it says you'll save more time than you will than it takes to actually read the book, uh, which is a great summary for the book itself. The book's been out for a little while now. Has is there in terms of some of the I don't know whether hacks is the right word, but the strategies, the tools around being wiser with your time? Is there any that have jumped out from maybe? people that have read it, people that are giving you feedback on on now having read the book? Oh, gosh, like it's really diverse. Um, and certainly with the strategies that are in the book and I think you know, there's about 100 or so, something like that, uh, you know, they, they do cover a range of themes, you know, from building better connections to working more efficiently to structuring your day better. And I think it, it sort of depends on what, what matters to the reader where they'll gravitate towards. Um, you know, if they're trying to focus on, you know, reducing digital distractions in their life, then, you know, typically it'll be something from the focus section of the book. Um, but, you know, if uh, if just maintaining better energy levels during the day is a thing, then then typically it's from that section. So I'd say it kind of depends on what the focus is for the reader. And I designed it in that way, that it is a book that you can kind of dip in and out of or, you know, think about, well, what are the, challenges in your life and how you're thinking about your time at the moment that you're struggling with and you know kind of have it be a bit of a choose your own adventure there are so many and and that just that chance to kind of dip in and out some of them are powerful in the utilization of language as well and particularly um, one that jumped out for me which I really love was the might do list as opposed to the to do list so shifting that sense of what I have to do what I should do uh, what I ought to be doing and creating that can you talk a little bit about that one in particular around what is the might do list and how does it actually help people around being wiser with their time yeah the the might do list is um is, is yeah really about taking away to-do list guilt and you know thinking about oh what are all the things that you know I feel like I have to do um, and if you have to do them and they're on your to-do list for the day you're going to feel guilty if you don't get to them but through having a might do list you you know you do eliminate that guilt um, you know and I must say like I I'm a massive fan of to-do lists and there are a few strategies to improve the way that you do to-do lists probably my favourite one in the book is is actually, I guess, the antithesis of a to-do list, which never ends because the thing about a to-do list is that you're always adding, adding, adding. It's not like you get to the end and then 
you've got nothing to do for a week, um, things will just keep piling in, much like people's inboxes. So um, a tip that I, I got originally from Rachel Botsman, who's uh, a, a world-renowned expert on trust and technology, she does something called a to-don't list where she will do a monthly reflection with herself and think about what are the things that she did that de-energized her or deflated her and she'll put them on her to-don't list, things that she doesn't do. Like, you know, she um, doesn't do meetings before 11 a.m. Um, she, you know, doesn't meet with this person, period. Uh, she, um, you know, doesn't undervalue the things that she finds easy to do, but others might find difficult to do. So, you know, there are a few things on her to-don't list and I've started a monthly ritual for myself where I will do the same thing. I will reflect on... What are the things that I've done in the last month that, that de-energized me? You know, maybe decisions that I regretted making and doing things that once I did them, I'm like, why did I say yes to this? Uh, and it helps me be more mindful about how I use my time. So instead of adding things, I think about what can I subtract? That question of, yeah, where have I felt drained or where have I been de-energized and the actual act of not only thinking about them but almost writing them down, um, it almost then becomes about it rather than me personally saying no. Mm. <laughs> uh, but it's actually on my to-don't list yep. uh, for this month. It might change mm. <laughs> depending on what that is. But that chance to, for the season or where I'm in right now, this is actually something I need to be really mindful of um, energy-wise. There was another hack that you talked that came from Taria Pitt, uh, which I – really gravitated towards as well around the if I'm saying yes to this and it was to happen tomorrow would I still say yes to it um is that something that that you put into place or consider in in the things that you do say yes to or say no to all the time. So, um, so this is uh, uh, Turia's next Tuesday rule where when she gets asked to do something in the far off distant future, like six months away, often, you know, all our diaries look fairly free in six to 12 months time. And it can be easy to just go, oh yeah, I'll do that because I don't have much going on then. But as we all know, when that time rolls around, like our diary is probably going to be pretty busy and she would often say yes to things. And then when the time came, she'd be like, ah, oh, why did I say yes to that? So to overcome that, challenge she asked herself how would I feel if this thing that I'm being asked to do were happening next Tuesday like next Tuesday when my diary's out of control busy would I feel excited is this a yes I would love to do this and anything like less than that response she declines um so this is something I use all the time uh whenever I'm asked to do something that is in the far off distant future that, um, that uh, you know, that I'm sort of tempted to say, yeah, yeah, sure, that seems fine. Um, I will think about that. Like even this morning uh, I've been emailing with someone who had asked me to, to speak in an event um, and they don't have budget. And normally my rule there is that, look, I'll consider it if it's a charity that I believe in, um, but otherwise I typically don't. Um, but But... I was sort of sitting on this one and going, oh, I do, I do want to have impact with this group of people, 
but it's kind of outside of the rules that I use to make those decisions quickly and easily. And so I did think, well, look, if this were happening next Tuesday, how would I feel? And the answer was no, I'd, I would actually feel excited to be involved in this. And so I said, yes. So look, it is something mm-hmm. that I use, I would say every week. That sense of almost pulling the future um, much, much closer to you to help with that decision making so that when it does, because there will come a point where it is literally next Tuesday or whatever day it is, that when you've arrived at that, you know you've already done that pre-thinking around it. One of the things I often think about when I am connecting and talking to people, and I'm sure that you have as well, is sometimes with kind of hacks and tools, there can be this sense of, um, it's almost the this is what Richard Branson does, so every every entrepreneur should do it, and you'll be successful as well. Or here are the ten things you should do before ten a.m. So there's almost sense of a sense of expectation without a sense of well, it depends on your context and your life and your world, um, and I'm sure you consider that as well. One of the things is understanding how we are a bit different, and you mentioned in the book about chronotypes in particular when it comes to the way that we work, the most effective way that we can work is understanding your chronotype. Can I ask you to define or at least explain a little bit what you mean by chronotypes and how they can be effective in deciding the kind of work and when to do it in your day? So really simply speaking, chronotype refers to the peaks and troughs of our energy levels over a 24-hour period. And uh, it, it's it's quite a, a huge area of research um, by psychologists into circadian rhythms and how our body clock works. And broadly speaking, there are three types of chronotypes. There are larks who are stereotypical morning people. So if you wake at you know five or six a.m. without an alarm, you're probably a lark. Um, if uh, on the other hand you are someone that uh, you know struggles to get up before eight or nine in the morning, you're probably an owl. Um, and if you get up at sort of around you know seven seven thirty naturally you're probably a middle bird uh so in, in terms of sort of population averages around sort of 16 to 17 percent of the population are larks about one in five people are owls and everyone else is a middle bird so we know for larks and middle birds your best thinking like your like your you know most alertness your highest brain power is happening before lunch it's generally sort of you know after you're fully awake, often takes sort of an hour or two to get fully awake um, in those next couple of hours. That's when your peak time is for doing really hard, difficult work. But for owls, it's at the opposite end of the day. It's like in the late afternoon or evening when, you know, sadly, most offices and schools are closed. So certainly the world is geared against owls. But, you know, at Inventium, for example, um, we we all assess our chronotypes. Every new starter would assess their chronotype. And um, and I can share a link with you, Ali, for, for listeners that are keen to assess theirs in a scientifically validated way, as opposed to just, you know, taking a guess as to the few words I've said about this. Um, but it's something that we get all our clients to do as well so that they can proactively structure their day so that they're doing their most challenging things from a cognitive or brain power point of view when they're naturally at their peak. Because so often our days are just reactive. We're just reacting to whatever gets thrown in our diary. But if you take charge of how your diary looks and what you're doing at certain times of day, you will be far more productive. That would be great to um, have that link, as you say, not not just to go, oh, this is <laughs> my chronotype changes during holidays <laughs> or <laughs> shift and change, but to mm-hmm. actually know that and 
then be much more conscious about applying that for your for yourself as well. In the book, as you say, you focus on there's there's different areas based on where people might want to focus their time. One of the core things is around connections. So being time wise is also about the networks that we have, uh, the people in our team or the people around us that that help us to do great work and continue to um, move at speed. We know that when there is a strong level of trust in connections, things move uh, much quicker, uh, the sense of kind of speed of trust. One of the one of the areas that you talk about in this area of connection is to be become an extreme giver, to be generous in the in, in what you kind of provide. Again, through the podcast, you've had a chance to connect with some of the best around the world and, and often that's a generosity of their time, their insights and their, their thinking. Have there been any stories or examples around this sense of being an extreme giver or um, generosity, whether it's through guests that you've connected with in the podcast or where you've seen this work really well um, either for yourself, your team or, or with clients, this sense of being really kind of generous with your time? Look, I, I, there, there are certainly a few standout guests that um, I've stayed in touch with uh, and that have been very, very generous, like people like Adam Grant, um, Nir Eyal, uh, who wrote Indistractable and Hooked um, and is one of my favourite writers and thinkers. Um, you know, he will often, um, you know, recommend good guests that he's come across to, to be on how I work, which I find really useful because, um, his, uh, his recommendations are always very, very good. Um, you know, Jake Knapp and John Zaratsky are also two standouts who, whose work I have been fans of for a long time. They were both at Google and Google ventures and, um, created the design sprint together. Um, and again, they've both been incredibly generous with, what they've given to me above and beyond having them on how I work, um, but in introducing me to, you know, new software and interesting people. Um, and Adam Grant, who, you know, wrote the book on giving uh, has been great. He uh, actually introduced me to a close collaborator of his a few years ago, um, uh, a guy called Reb. And, you know, we've just recently collaborated on a work project together, which um, is really wonderful. So, uh, yeah, I'd say that, you know, there, there are definitely some standouts. I mean, you know, for anyone to dedicate an hour of their time to having a chat to a stranger, I always think is, you know, is really lovely um, and, you know, is a fortunate position that I guess podcast hosts that um, have enough of a following to make that a compelling, you know, kind of transaction, I guess, mm. at its most basic. Um, but, you know, I do always quite, you know, feel quite, quite privileged with the people that do choose to spend time with me on how I work. There's something like a um, you you feel like you want to pass that on as well, which kind of then strengthens connections, whether it's in in beyond those networks as well. Mantha, I'm really interested in your take, whether it was through writing the book or definitely in your deep thinking around how we work better and how we can do things differently. Sometimes with productivity, it can it can be this sense of we need to be much more efficient so we can squeeze more in. Um, and which can then lead to a kind of this perpetual sense of overwhelm. Um, I know that's very much this book is not that book at all, but what's your, uh, I guess, take or thinking around what can almost be just this sense of hustle more, cram more, do more, um, squeeze in more that sometimes doesn't necessarily connect to a sense of 
values or or energy or uh, momentum? Where is that tension in whether it was in writing the book or in in conversations through the podcast? How does that sit for you? I'm interested in your your take and approach. Yeah. So look, I I do think quite a lot about this. I mean, there's so much like productivity porn out there, like articles that are like, you know, the, you know, 53 things that the you know world's top CEOs do before breakfast and, you know, stuff like that. And I click on all those articles because they're quite compelling headlines. But I, when I was writing time-wise, I thought like the world doesn't need more productivity porn. And quite frankly, it's not really in line with my values or how I work. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I would rarely spend more than sort of 35 or 40 hours a week working, particularly with the gift of the fifth. It's often less than that. Um, and I feel like the thing that people really need is to be more conscious of how they do choose to allocate the hours that we've all got in our day. You know, like I'll, I'll you know, I'll often be, you know, like talking to a client and they'll be talking about how they were just stuck in, are like you know video calls or zoom meetings all day and they had to do their work at night but the meetings that they were in they didn't actually have to be in they were 60 minute meetings that probably could have been a 20 minute chat uh and there's just all this time wastage and i think that's the thing that makes me really angry like just bad work habits that organizations have that are inflicted onto people that no one sort of stops to question um and it just, it sucks up so much of our time. And then the result is that we don't prioritise time for our health or our family or other things that most people would say that they value. But if you look at their calendar and how they're actually choosing to dedicate the hours in the day, their calendar doesn't necessarily f- reflect those values. Almost there's a celebration in <laughs> You know, as much as it was hard and there was a lot to change about the way that we work with COVID, but it shook up all of those different habits and some of those I think in a really good way that we could consciously go, do we need to have this meeting? Do we actually need to be in a room? Can I do this a different way? So sometimes the power of disruption allows us to to question the things that are just just the way that we do do things around here. I want to change tact a little bit um slightly differently coming back to that experiment mindset the approach of our hypothesis to test parameters to test things um, sometimes in experiments they don't always work or they don't always match to the hypothesis that we might have had um, and whether it's around this but also you've you've shared a thing called your failure resume and talking about Reducing, I guess, almost the impact of a failure, hiding behind it by by sharing it, by being able to talk about it and, and put a, a language around it. How do you see, and I put this in inverted commas, failure? Well, I see failure as a positive if we can learn from it. So the failure resume exercise was about, you know, sort of a normal resume where you talk about your successes and your key achievements and the goals that you hit and all that sort of stuff. The failure resume was going, what have been the biggest failures that I've experienced? But importantly, what have I learned from that? And so it's an exercise that I've done a couple of times um, because sharing failures and talking about them openly 
can actually improve your resist, like resilience and how you deal with those things. Um, and certainly um, my team ended up just, you know, voluntarily creating their own failure resumes. I remember the first time I did it and it really did bring us a lot closer, I think, as a team, you know, we were already close knit, but um, it felt like something shifted when we all just off the back, you know, just sort of wanting to do it. We all created our own and shared those. So I think it's a really powerful exercise to go through. Um, you know, it obviously taps into the huge amount that has you know been written around vulnerability and all the benefits that come with that. But, um, you know, failure, good failure, that is failure where you learn something from it is so, so important. There is bad, bad failure as well, where if you don't learn anything from the failure, then that's quite a waste in my opinion. <laughs> is there a, um, to, to go from the bad to the good, to go from being stuck in the, um, whether it's shame or vulnerability or stuff up or I should have done this differently to, okay, it is what it is. I do wish I'd done something differently, but what can I learn about that? What can I sit in um, to shift from that? What helps you go from bad to good, <laughs> A to B? Um, what are those things that help you? Mm, I, look, I think definitely giving yourself time to reflect. Like quite often we just don't stop and reflect Uh that is a big problem. So like at Inventium, we we have a quarterly process that's called our self-reflection process where every quarter, everyone on the team will take a step back and they will ponder a bunch of questions that, uh, that, that we give to them. And it's just a chance to sit back and go, what have I done? What have I learned? What do I want to do differently moving forward? We just don't ask ourselves those questions enough. We're always just sort of moving to the next thing. So I think that's really important. But also when it comes to failure, I think adopting an experimental mindset is really big. I mean, we spend so much time with our clients at Inventium training them in how to run experiments. You know, how do you set a hypothesis? How do you design a minimum viable product or, you know, basic version of your idea that will allow you to test that hypothesis? And then how do you... Um, gather data and analyze that data. So I think just having that experimental mindset um, is is just something that's certainly served me really well and it makes failure less personal because it's like, well, I was just doing an experiment and, oh, it failed. So that's interesting. Um, or it worked. That's interesting too. So I think that that underpins how I think about failure, having that experimental mindset. The time, the space to sit in the questions and almost have the culture of of that within a team is really powerful because it, it gets you out of the headspace uh, and, and that chance to go, okay, let's reflect, let's check, what have I learnt, how do I check in? And for me, I think this really ties in beautifully everything we've talked about in terms of the way of work, how we make changes, having that experimental approach and a sense of a hypothesis, what's working, what's not, how do we measure that so we we really objectively know that uh, and then that sense of curiosity, what are some of the best doing which which you really invest time in, particularly around the podcast and then have distilled in this incredible book um, and we'll definitely have all the links so that everyone can tap into um, where they can connect with you and to connect into some of that thinking. What's exciting you about what's what's next for you? 
Hmm. Well, I would say at Inventium, we we are working on, you know, a, a few new things around how can we really help people eliminate a lot of the bad work habits that are sucking up time unnecessarily. So I'm certainly very excited about that. Um, and gosh, I, you know, I think one of the joys of hosting a podcast is that like there's always so much excitement in who you know like the guests that you curate and you know there are certainly like conversations that I've got coming up over the next few months that I um I'm genuinely excited to you know talk to these people and go how do you work and what can I learn from you so um there are a couple of things that come to mind Mantha, I've, I've got so much value out of this conversation and really, really appreciate your time. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? For me, it's about living, living a life where I'm able to, I mean, it's such a cliche, but it is just do my part to leave the world and at least a few individuals' lives better than they were otherwise. It's cliche, but it's hard to keep front of mind. It's, it's a consistent thing to kind of keep front of mind. It's something I'd sign up for, for sure. Thank you so much for your time, Amantha. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life. Life.